Chapter 12. Coronation Day. O thou that sea-walled sever from the lands unwalled by seas, wilt thou endure for ever, O Milton's England, these? Thou that wast his republic, wilt thou clasp their knees? These royalties rust-eaten, these worm-corroded lies that keep thy head storm-beaten and sun-like strength of eyes from the open air and heaven of intercepted skies. Swinburne Vivat Rex Eduardus They crowned a king this day, and there's been great rejoicing and elaborate tomfoolery, and I'm perplexed and saddened. I never saw anything to compare with the pageant, except Yankee circuses and Alhambra ballets, and nor did I ever see anything so hopeless and tragic. To have enjoyed the coronation procession, I should have come straight from America to the Hotel Cecil, and straight from the Hotel Cecil to a five-guinea seat amongst the washed. My mistake was that in coming from the unwashed of the East End, there were not many who came from that quarter, I have to say. The East End as a whole remained in the East End and got drunk. The Socialists, Democrats and the Republicans went off to the country for a breath of fresh air, quite unaffected by the fact that 400 millions of people were taking to themselves a crowned and anointed ruler. 6,500 prelates, priests, statesmen, princes and warriors beheld the crowning and the anointing, and the rest of us the pageant as it passed. I saw it in Trafalgar Square, the most splendid sight in Europe, and the very innermost heart of the empire. There are many thousands of us, all checked and held in order by a superb display of armed power. The line of march was double-walled with soldiers. The base of Nelson's column was triple-fringed with blue jackets. Eastward, at the entrance to the square, stood the Royal Marine Artillery. In the triangle of Pall Mall and Cockspur Street, the statue of George III was buttressed on either side by the Lancers and Hussars. To the west were the red coats of the Royal Marines, and from the Union Club to the embouchure of Whitehall swept the glittering, massive curve of the First Lifeguards, gigantic men mounted on gigantic chargers, steel-breasted, steel-helmeted, steel-caparisoned, and a great war-sword of steel ready to hand of the powers that be. And further, throughout the crowd, were flung long lines of the Metropolitan Constabulary, while in the rear were the reserves, tall, well-fed men with weapons to wield and muscles to wield them in case of need. And, as it was thus at Trafalgar Square, so it was along the whole line of march, force, overpowering force, myriads of men, splendid men, the pick of the people, whose sole function in life is blindly to obey and blindly to kill and destroy and stamp out life. And that they should be well fed and well clothed and well armed and have ships to hurl them to the ends of the earth, the east end of London and the east end of all England toils and rots 
and dies. There's a Chinese proverb that if one man lives in laziness, another will die of hunger. And Montesquieu has said, The fact that many men are occupied in making clothes for one individual is the cause of there being many peoples without clothes. And so one explains the other. We cannot understand the starved and the runty toilers of the East End, living with his family in a one-room den, and letting out the floor space for lodgings to other starved and runty toilers, till we look at the strapping lifeguardsmen of the West End, and come to know that the one must feed and clothe and groom the other. And while in Westminster Abbey the people were taking unto themselves a king, I jammed between the lifeguards and the constabulary of Trafalgar Square, was dwelling upon the time when the people of Israel first took unto themselves a king. Well, you know how it runs. The elders came to the prophet Samuel and said, Make us a king to judge us like all the nations. And the Lord said unto Samuel, Now therefore hearken unto their voice. How be it? Thou shalt show them the manner of the king that shall reign over them. And Samuel told all the words of the Lord unto the people that asked him of a king. And he said, This will be the manner of the king that will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them unto you for his chariots to be his horsemen. And they shall run before his chariots. And he will appoint unto them for certain thousands and captains of fifties. And he will set some to the plough his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his instruments of war and the instruments of his chariots. And he will take your daughters to be confectionaries and to be cooks and to be bakers. And he will take your fields and your vineyards and your olive yards and even the best of them and give them to his servants. And he will take a tenth of your seed and of your vineyards and give them to his officers and to his servants. And he will take your manservants and your maidservants and your godliest young men and your asses and he will put them to his work. And he will take a tenth of your flock and ye shall be his servants." And ye shall call out in that day, because your king, which ye should have chosen you, and the Lord will not answer you in that day. All of which came to pass in that ancient day, and they did cry out to Samuel, saying, Pray for the servants unto the Lord thy God, that we die not, for we have added unto all our sins this evil, to ask us a king. And after Saul and David, and Solomon, there came Rehoboam, who answered the people roughly, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father chastised you with whips, but I will chastise you with scorpions. And in these latter days, five hundred hereditary peers own one-fifth of England, and they the officers and the servants under the king, and those who go to compose the powers that be, yearly spend in wasteful luxury one billion eight hundred and fifty million dollars, or three hundred and seventy million pounds, which is thirty-two percent 
of the total wealth produced by all the toilers in the country. At the Abbey, clad in wonderful golden raiment, amid the fanfare of trumpets and throbbing of music, surrounded by a brilliant throng of masters, lords and rulers, the king was being invested with the insignia of his sovereignty. The spurs were placed to his heels by the Lord Great Chamberlain, and a sword of state in purple scabbard presented to him by the Archbishop of Canterbury with these words. Receive this kingly sword, brought now from the altar of God, and delivered to you by the hands of the bishops and the servants of God, though unworthy. And whereupon, being girded, he gave heed to the archbishop's exhortations. With this sword, do justice, stop the growth of iniquity, protect the holy church of God, help and defend widows and orphans, restore the things which are gone to decay, maintain the things that are restored, punish and reform what is amiss, and confirm what is in good order. Well, hark at that. There's cheering down Whitehall. The crowd sways, the double walls of soldiers come to attention, and into view swings the king's watermen in fantastic medieval garbs of red, for all the world like the van of a circus parade. Then a royal carriage filled with ladies and gentlemen of the household, with powdered footmen and coachmen, most gorgeously arrayed. Then more carriages, lords and chamberlains, viscounts, mistresses of the robes, lackeys all. And then the warriors, a kingly escort, generals, bronzed and worn from the ends of the earth, come up to London town. Volunteer officers, officers of the militia and regular forces, Spens and Plumer, Broadward and Cooper, who relieved Ukpi and Matthias of Dargi and Dixon of Vacfontaine, General Gasly and Admiral Seymour of China, and Kitchener of Khartoum, and Lord Roberts of India, and all the world. The fighting men of England, masters of destruction, engineers of death. Another race of men from whom the shops and slums were a totally different race of men. But here they come, in all the pomp and certitude of power, and still they come, these men of steel, these warlords and these world harnesses, pell-mell, peers and commoners, princes and maharajas, equerries to the king and the yeomen of the guard, and here the colonials, lithe and hardy men, and here all the breeds of all the world soldiers from Canada and Australia and New Zealand, from Bermuda and Borneo and Fiji, and from the Gold Coast and from Rhodesia and Cape Colony and Natal and Sierra Leone and Gambia, Nigeria, Uganda, from Ceylon, Cyprus, Hong Kong, Jamaica and Wei Hai Wai, from Lagos, Malta, St. Lucia, Singapore, Trinidad. And here the conquered men of India, swarthy horsemen and sword-wielders, fiercely barbaric, blazing in crimson and scarlet, Sikhs, Rajputs, Burmese, 
province by province and caste by caste. And now, the horse guards, a glimpse of beautiful cream ponies and golden panoply, a hurricane of cheers, the crashing of bands. The king! The king! God save the king! Everybody has gone mad. The contagion is sweeping me off my feet, for I too want to shout, The king! God save the king! Ragged men about me, tears in their eyes, are tossing up their hats and crying ecstatically, Ah, bless em! Bless em! Bless em! And see, see, here he is, that wondrous golden coach! Yes, and the great crowd flashing on its head, and the woman in white besides him likewise crowned. Well, I check myself with a rush, striving to convince myself that it is all real and rational, and not some glimpse of fairyland. This, well, I cannot succeed in doing it, and it is better so. I much prefer to believe that all of this pomp, vanity, show, and mumbo-jumbo foolery has come from fairyland, than to believe in it the performance of sane and sensible people who have mastered matter and solved the secrets of the stars. Huh. Princes and princelings, dukes, duchesses, and all manner of coroneted folk of the royal train are flashing past. The more warriors on lackeys and conquered peoples, and the pageant then is over. I drift with the crowd out of the square into a tangle of narrow streets, where the public houses are a roar with drunkenness, men and women and children mixed together in colossal debauch. And on every side is rising the favourite song of the coronation. Oh, on coronation day, on coronation day, we'll have a spree, a jubilee, and shout hip hip hooray, for we'll all be merry, drinking whiskey, wine and sherry, we'll all be merry on coronation day. The rain is pouring down. Up the street come troops of the auxiliaries, black Africans, yellow Asiatics, beturbaned and befezed, and coolies swinging along with machine guns and mountain batteries on their heads, and the bare feet of all in quick rhythm going slish, slish, slish through the pavement mud. The public houses are empty by magic, and the swarthy allegiance are cheered by their British brothers who return at once to the carouse. "'How did you like the procession, mate?' I asked an old man on a bench in Green Park. "'How did I like it? Blooming good chance it was,' I said to myself, for sleep. "'You aren't with all the coppers, or... "'So I turned into the corner, and there, along with fifty others, "'but I, I couldn't sleep, you know, lying there, "'and thinking how I'd worked all these years of my life, "'and now I'd no place to rest my head. And the music's coming to me, and the cheers, and, and the cannon, till I got almost anarchistic. I wanted to blow out the brains of the Lord Chamberlain. Why the Lord Chamberlain, I couldn't precisely see. Nor could he. But that was the way he felt, he said conclusively, and there was no more discussion. As night drew on, the city became a blaze of light. Splashes of colour, green, amber, ruby. They caught my eye at every point. And the capital E, capital R in great crystal letters 
and backed by flaming gas was everywhere. The crowds in the streets increased by hundreds of thousands, and though the police sternly put down mafficking, drunkenness, and rough play, it all abounded. Tired workers seemed to have gone mad with the relaxation and the excitement, and they surged and danced down the streets, men and women, old and young, with linked arms in long rows, singing, I may be crazy, but I love you, and Dolly Gray, and the honeysuckle and the bee. The last rendered something like this, You are the honeysuckle and the bee, Oh, the tip the any from the rose lips, yes, you see. I sat on the bench in the Thames embankment, looking across the illuminated water. It was approaching midnight, and before me poured the better class of merrymakers, shunning the more riotous streets and returning home. On the bench beside me sat two ragged creatures, a man and a woman, nodding and dozing. The woman sat with her arms clasped across the breast, holding tightly her body in constant play, now dropping forward till it seemed in balance would be overcome and she would fall onto the pavement, but now inclining to the left, sideways, till her head rested on the man's shoulder, and now to the right, stretched and strained, till the pain of it woke her, and she sat bolt upright. Whereupon the dropping forward would begin again, and go through the cycle till she was aroused by the strain and the stretch. Every little while, boys and young men stopped long enough to go behind the bench and give vent to sudden and fiendish shouts. This always jerked the man and woman abruptly from their sleep, and at the sight of the startled woe upon their faces, the crowd would roar with laughter as it flooded past. This was the most striking thing. The general heartlessness exhibited on every hand. It's a commonplace. The homeless on the benches, the poor, miserable folk who may be teased and are harmless. And 50,000 people must have passed that bench while I sat on it, and not one on such a jubilee occasion as the crowning of the king felt his heartstrings touch sufficiently to come up and say to the woman, Look, here's sixpence. Go and get a bed. But the woman, especially the young women, just made witty remarks upon the woman nodding, and invariably they set their companions laughing. To use a Briticism, it was cruel. The corresponding Americanism was more appropriate. It was fierce. I confess I began to grow incensed at this happy crowd streaming by, and to extract a sort of satisfaction from the London statistics which demonstrate that one in every four adults is destined to die on public charity, either in the workhouse, the infirmary, or the asylum. I talked with the man. He was fifty-four, and a broken-down docker. He could only find odd work when there was a large demand for labour, and the younger and stronger men were preferred when times were slack. He spent a week now on the benches of the embankment, but things looked brighter for the next week, and he might possibly get a few days' work and have a bed in some doss house. He'd lived all his life in London, save for five years when in 1878 he saw foreign service in India. Of course, he would eat, so would the girl. Days like this were uncommon hard on such as they. 
though the coppers were so busy poor folk could get in more sleep. I awoke the girl, a woman rather, for she was an eight-and-twenty, sir, as we started for the coffee-house. "'What a lot of work putting up the lights!' said the man in sight of some of the buildings, which were superbly illuminated. This was the keynote of his being. All his life he'd worked, and the whole object of his universe, as well as his own soul, could be expressed in terms only of work. "'Yeah, coronations is some good,' he went on. "'They give work to men.' "'But your belly is empty,' I said. "'Yeah,' he answered. "'I tried.' Yeah, but there wasn't any chance. My age's against me, you see. What do you work at? Seafaring chapper? Yeah, knew it from your clothes. I know what you are, said the girl. An Italian. Um, no, I ain't, the man cried heatedly. He's a Yank. Uh, he's what, what, that's what he is, I know that. Lord Lammy, look at that, she exclaimed, as we debouched into the strand, choking the roaring, reeling coronation crowd, the men bellowing and the girls singing in their high-throaty notes. Oh, on coronation day, on coronation day, we'll have a spree, a jubilee, and shout hip hip hooray, for we'll all be merry, drinking whiskey, wine and sherry, and we'll all be merry on coronation day. Uh, "'And how dirty I am being around when, when I have,' the woman said. She sat down in the coffee-house, wiping the sleep and grime from the corners of her eyes. "'And the sights that I've seen this day. I enjoyed it, though it was lonesome by myself. And the Duchess and the ladies, and all the in the grand white dresses. They was just, just beautiful, beautiful.' "'I'm Irish,' she said, in answer to my question.' "'My name's, uh, Ethorn.' "'What?' I asked. "'Ethorn, sir, Ethorn. "'Spell it. "'H-A-Y-T-H-O-R-N-E. "'Ethorn.' "'Oh,' I said. "'Irish Cockney, then?' "'Oh, yes, sir. London-born.' "'She had lived happily at home till her father died, killed in an accident when he'd found himself on the world. One brother was in the army, and the other brother engaged in keeping a wife and eight children on twenty shillings a week and unsteady employment, and could do nothing at all for her. She'd been out of London once in her life to a place in Essex, twelve miles away, where she'd picked fruit for three weeks. Yeah, and I was brown as a berry when I come back. You wouldn't believe it, but I was. The last place in which he'd worked was a coffee-house, hours from seven in the morning till eleven at night, and for which she received five shillings a week and her food. Then she'd fallen sick, and since emerging from the hospital, she'd been unable to find anything to do. She wasn't feeling up to much, and the last two nights had been spent in the street. Between them, they stowed away a prodigious amount of food, this man and woman, and it was not till I had duplicated and triplicated their original orders that they showed no sign of easing down. Once she reached the cross and felt the texture of my coat and shirt and remarked upon the good clothes of the Yanks wore. 
My rags were good clothes. <laughs> it put me to the blush. But on inspecting them more closely and on examining the clothes worn by the man and the woman, I began to feel quite well-dressed and respectable. "'What do you expect to do in the end?' I asked them. "'You know you're growing older every day.' "'Workhouse,' he said. "'God blimey if I do,' she said. "'There's no hope for me, I know, but I'll die on the streets, I guess. "'No workhouse to me, thank you. No, indeed.' She sniffed in the silence that fell. "'And after you've been out all night in the streets,' I asked, "'what do you do in the morning for something to eat?' "'Ah, uh, try to get a penny, if you haven't got one saved over,' the man exclaimed, "'and then you go to the coffee house and get yourself a mug of tea.' "'But I don't see how that's going to feed you,' I objected. "'The pair smiled knowingly. <laughs> You drink your tea in little sips, he went on, making it last longest, and you look sharp, as to some as leaves as might be left behind. It's surprising, the food what some people leaves, the women broke in. The thing, the man said judicially, as the trick dawned upon me, is to get older the penny. As we started to leave, Miss Haythorn gathered up a couple of crusts from the neighbouring tables and thrust them somewhere into her rags. "'Can't waste her, you know,' she said, to which the docker nodded, tucking away a couple of crusts himself. At three in the morning I strolled up the embankment. It was gala night for the homeless, for the police were elsewhere, and each bench was jammed with sleeping occupants. There were as many women as men, and the great majority of them, male and female, were old. Occasionally a boy was to be seen, and on one bench I noticed a family, a man sitting upright with a sleeping babe in his arms, his wife asleep on her head on his shoulder, and in her lap the head of a sleeping youngster. The man's eyes were wide open. He was staring out over the water and thinking which is not a good thing for a shelterless man to be with a wife and family to do. I would not be, it wouldn't be a pleasant thing to speculate upon his thoughts, but, well, this I know, and all London knows, that the cases of out-of-work killing their wives and babies is not an uncommon happening. One cannot walk along the Thames Embankment in the small hours of the morning from the Houses of Parliament past Cleopatra's Needle to Waterloo Bridge without being reminded of the sufferings seven and twenty centuries old recited by the author of Job. There are that remove the landmarks. They violently take away flocks and feed them. They drive away the ass of the fatherless. They take the widow's ox for a pledge. They turn the needy out of the way. The poor of the earth hide themselves together. And behold, as wild asses in the desert, they go forth to their work, seek diligently for meat. The wilderness yieldeth them food for their children. They cut their provender in the field, and they glean the vintage of the wicked. They lie all night naked without clothing, and have no covering in the cold. They are wet with the showers of the mountains, and they embrace the rock for want of shelter. 
There are those that pluck the fatherless from the breast, and they take the pledge of the poor, so that they go about naked without clothing, and being unhungered, they carry the sheaves. Job 24, 2-10 Well, seven and twenty centuries have gone, and it's all as true and opposite today as the innermost centre of this Christian civilization, whereof Edward the Seventh is king.